Welcome to Sharing the Magic, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the enchanting worlds of Disney. Each week, we're joined by a special guest. Whether they're a magician creating moments of astonishment or a Disney expert sharing the secrets behind the magic of the happiest place on earth. Together, we'll uncover the stories, inspirations, and behind-the-scenes tales that bring these worlds to life. So, get ready to be spellbound and transported to a place where dreams come true. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sharing the Magic. I'm your host, Barry, and tonight we are going to speak with a gentleman who has touched many lives throughout the world, as well as parks here in the U.S. But before we introduce who that is, let's introduce our cast. Starting with the new year, we have new members on our podcast, so let's go ahead and Let's do the big round table. We'll say hello to Matt. Matt, how you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Barry. Happy New Year, everyone. Excited to uh, get our first episode back after a little bit of a break there. Yes. Feels like forever. <laughs> All right, <laughs> next. Uh, Lindsay? Lindsay, how you doing? I am doing great. Hey, friends. It's um, a new year, and hopefully we're going to kick this off. All right. And Tara. Tara, how are we doing tonight? I'm doing good, Barry. Happy New Year's, everyone. I'm looking forward to another amazing year with you guys. Next up, we have Rachel. Rachel, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. Um, I'm glad to be joining this podcast for the first full episode. Last time I had the flu, so it was only a little halfway there. So happy New Year, everyone. And we have Lisa. Lisa, how you doing? Hi there. Happy New Year, everyone. Good to see you all again. Can't wait to talk about Disney and, and all the magic that we get to, to talk about each week. Absolutely. All right. And one of our new co-hosts is Michelle. Michelle, how are you doing tonight? Hi, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. Happy New Year, everybody. And last but not least, we have Angela. Angela, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on this podcast and talk all things Disney. Yeah, and and like I said, we have a little bigger team now, so we feel like we're able to uh, have a little bit more of a Disney friend chat, little you know Disney side chat, if you will, with our guests who come in. And like I said, our guest uh, is a former Imagineer, and he has done work on. Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong Disney, as well as Epcot and Journey into Imagination. So without further ado, let's welcome Tom Morris. Tom, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, Tom, let's jump right in. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about how you fell in love with Disney and how you got to work there? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, How I fell in love with Disney? uh, Well, growing up in Southern California will do it to you. Um, If you live within a a certain radius of Disneyland, your family back in the day before annual passes would usually take you, many families uh, would take you once a year, a family outing to Disneyland. might be in the summer or during the holiday season or for your birthday. 
And um, that was the situation in our home. We were uh, an annual Disneyland um, family. And uh, we often went on the 4th of July for some crazy reason, because that was always the busiest day. So um, I, my earliest memory of Disneyland, I think I was two years old. And I just remember crawling at, at, at one point, uh, crawling between the legs of dozens or hundreds of grownups. <laughs> I think my parents kind of took their eye off of me uh, for a minute. And I just went um, kind of crawling around. Uh, it was in Fantasyland, as a matter of fact. And I just remember, you know, looking up and crawling, you know, between the legs of of uh, visitors and they were laughing, looking at me and I'd wave and they'd wave. And, and then I went back to my parents and um, I, that's one of my earliest, if not my earliest memory. And uh, so it, my you know earliest memory is of crowds, <laughs> uh, really crowded days, 4th of July, waiting, you know, in long lines, you know, to get on the Skyway or onto Snow White. And back then, you know, you didn't really care that much uh, as, as a as a youngster, it was like, it was certainly better than being at home or being at school. So, but I, I wouldn't say that I was like, you know, a Disney diehard until, you know, until much later. Uh, I was interested at one point, I did get very interested in Disney animation. I would say I was probably about eight or nine years old when the Jungle Book came out. And so that was probably the very first career consideration I ever uh, began thinking about um, and thought that would be a lot of fun. And then my dad got a seasonal job at Disneyland because he was a high school teacher. And that's what high school teachers did in Southern California. Uh, worked at Disneyland in the summertime and holiday seasons. And he was um, part of the opening year crew. He wasn't the very original opening crew, but the second wave uh, opening crew starting around uh, May or June for Pirates of the Caribbean. And so that also had uh, a big effect on me because uh, he took me for a ride on that um, one summer night and I was hooked. So um, long story short, I got interested in film, architecture, animation, and Imagineering and um, I eventually uh, wandered into Imagineering. Uh, after getting a job at Disneyland. So I, I was uh, working at Disneyland um, as a permanent part-time employee going through high school and the first years of college. And um, lo and behold, they started hiring for Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland. And um, they they had headhunters. <laughs> um, Disney had headhunters in the um, parks and other places where they were um, seeking talent and um, not just creative talent, but everywhere across the board in the Disney company, because the Disney company was about to expand exponentially at the end of the 70s and early 80s with the addition of Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland, and also uh, trying to get the film, live action film division uh, back to a healthy state and also get the second generation of animators going. And so they were finding people at CalArts and other local colleges um, to, you know, to be future animators. And at Disneyland, they were looking at people to work on Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland. And someone found me or found out about me that I was interested and that I had drafting experience, which was all from high school, three years though. And um, 
they hired me and uh i was only 19 <laughs> years old i was at the end of my 19th year and in the middle of my second year of college so i thought i would do that for a year or two to get some experience and then the year or two lasted 40 years i guess weird huh yeah, uh, that's quite a story. So, so Tom, let me ask you, did you know when you were young? I mean, I know for some people when Disney like hits you, smacks you right in the face when you walk in there and you're just like awestruck by everything. So when, when, when you, when you attended, you know, on July 4th, God forbid, I don't know why you would go at that time, but, <laughs> but knowing, knowing that and seeing, um, so was, did Disney have such an, impression on you that you had to do it or was it just because it was it was something no. familiar for you no it was what we did we you know we um we had a beach house in newport uh we would go there on the weekends we would spend a lot of time there in the summer we went to disneyland once a year we went to the dorothy chandler pavilion once a year <laughs> Uh, you know, to see the christmas show so there you know they were kind of uh, routines or rituals and so there wasn't anything especially crazy about it, but, um, you know, we watched the Disney TV show on Sunday night and it was, you know, it was compelling, but I, I wouldn't say that I was obsessed with it until much later because I was, you know, interested in a lot of different things, you know, but it's generally entertainment related or architecture, you know, it's just kind of the, you know, the live action filmmaking too. All of those things I was sort of interested in, but they were fantasies at that time, you know, because like you thought, well, there's no way I can, you know, do that. I didn't really even know there. Well, I guess I kind of knew there was a job where you could work on Disneyland things from watching the TV show. But um, again, it's like, well, how many people do that? You know, a handful, a hundred maybe. So what are the chances that I would ever do that? So that really didn't ever cross my mind. And I think it was just, you know, I had an appreciation for the park, but um, I liked other places, too. And um, we weren't a Knott's Berry Farm family, oddly, though, <laughs> for some reason. Um, we were kind of, you know, uh, specific to Disneyland, but then other, you know, state parks, national parks and that sort of thing. You know, there's people who are obsessed with Disney, like the first time that they see it. Then there's other people right. that it, it takes over time to actually, they go to the park and it's like, what's the big deal? You know, but after multiple times coming, then they start feeling a little more attached to it. So let me, let me, let me ask you on this one. How, how did you get into uh, Imagineering or what was the process of that? Well, I had um, taken three years of um, architectural drafting in high school, which I did. Why did I do that? I just thought it was interesting. It was, you know, it was to me, it was more interesting than a lot of the other options at the time. Um, and I did have an interest in in architecture. So I had a, basically a portfolio from high school that was pretty good. It was, you know, it was um, pretty, you know, three years It's three years <laughs> experience. And I, as part of the portfolio, there were some kind of Disney-esque projects that um, I did do like a, I did like a storybook cottage. I think I did, you know, a Hansel and Gretel type cottage and a kind of a Frank Lloyd Wright-ish, you know, kind of a house and a futuristic, you know, kind of office, I think. So there was a smattering of different styles that I think, 
would, you know, in hindsight, I realized that's probably what they saw in the portfolio. So Disneyland at the time, I was a ride operator at this time, I think beginning my senior year of high school. And so they had began a career planning and placement department and, and, um, what they were doing is they were looking for, they wanted to start hiring, you know, begin the hiring process for all of these big projects. And so I think there was something in the Disneyland line employee newsletter about, you know, if you have an interest in pursuing a career with Disney in any of these broad fields from accounting, you know, to scheduling, to, you know, operations, to uh, imagineering, submit your portfolio, put it on file. We'll keep it here on file. And as soon as one of those job openings comes up, you'll be among the first group of people uh, that we will look at versus on the outside. This was you know, part of the um, uh, higher within philosophy of the company. And so I did that kind of thinking, well, you know, when, <laughs> you know, after college, I'm thinking after college for one thing, and will they still be hiring after college? Who knows? But so I, I submitted my drafting work and I also submitted some illustrations I had done because I was also, you know, taking illustration um, courses and classes and um, doing some architectural renderings or placemaking renderings. And, um, and those were okay. I actually, I think now, now that I remember, I did do some, I was inspired to do illustrations. I wanted to do one in the style of Ivan Durrell, one in the style of Claude Coates, one in the style of, I'd have to go back, but there were, you know, um, I'd have to go back and look at the photos, but I, Mark Davis was another one. Um, so I was experimenting because I, by this time I had met Tony Baxter and, you know, he had become an acquaintance of mine and had also given me very sage advice about what to put in a portfolio, what they were looking for, et cetera. And he would also tell me things, you know, give me really good information, like what kind of paint and what kind of ink and what kind of pen did Mark Davis use? So I would go out and I would get that paint, or in that case, I think it was Doc Martin dives, maybe it was, and a Mont Blanc pen. <laughs> and I would try to see if I could it wasn't to you know so that I would take his style or you know uh, appropriate his style. It was just to get an idea of all the different tools um, and what kind of effect they created. So I learned about gouache and I learned about which is a special kind of paint and acrylics. Oh, Herb Ryman was another one that I you know made an uh, an attempt. <laughs> um, so these were in my portfolio as well by that time. And I, you know, was hoping that that's really what they, what caught their eye, but what caught their eye was the drafting. And, um, but because it was more creative than the typical drafting that they had seen, they put me in the show set design department, uh, which is responsible for designing um, and doing the construction drawings for the sets that you see in the attractions. And that's where I started at the tender age of 19. And the first thing I worked on uh, was the world of motion. And I did a little bit of, and that was just a little bit of work. Although I did, I, it was very weird. You know, it, uh, suddenly like I was asked to come up with ideas for a scene that they hadn't designed, that they had discovered there was like extra space between one 
seen in another. And so um, I believe it was Claude Coates who asked that I come up with some ideas for a scene um, involving a hot air balloon. And so I did some pencil sketches for that. And um, some of those ideas were used and some were not in that scene. So, and it was very nonchalant. It wasn't like, here, we're giving, you know, not many people get to do that right away. And I just, you know, really, I wasn't excited necessarily because it, it was so nonchalant. It was like, oh yeah, um, we need you to do this. Okay. <laughs> like at some point, I'm sure it crossed my mind. Why am I doing this? Because I was not, you know, uh, uh, nearly as talented as most of the people there doing that sort of thing. And so, like I said, it, you know, parts of my sketch work were incorporated into that scene and other parts were not. And then I also did some set work in the um, Roman uh, scene with the chariot. And the, there's also a Chinese pagoda in there. So that was within the first couple of months um, that I started. Usually they give you, and they did for me, they give you grunt work at the very beginning just to make sure that, you know, you weren't lying in your portfolio or something. Uh, you, you know, you do some very basic uh, title block work or uh, presentation, you know, um, work mounting mounting other people's drawings on an illustration board and matting them and that sort of thing, labeling. Um, but that lasted a week or two. And the, the reason was, it wasn't because I was, they saw any great talent in me. The reason was they were shorthanded um, and they needed people and they were hiring like crazy. I mean, every week there was like another, you know, group of 12 or 15 people uh, coming in from all different disciplines, engineers, you know, writers, filmmakers, model builders. And um, it was growing fast and no sooner you know, had I finished the work on World of Motion, then I was asked to join a group of people that Tony Baxter was putting together to explore the possibilities for an imagination pavilion attraction, which was a late add to the uh, lineup for Epcot. Um, so uh, journey into imagination and Kodak were not words or terms <laughs> uh, when I started in January 1979 and by I think it was May when that hit um, that suddenly Kodak was extremely interested and they were going to sign if Disney um, guaranteed that the pavilion would open on opening day be part of the opening day lineup so you know that meant this had to happen really fast and there were no architects available um, to join Tony's team at that time. Everyone was working on the priorities, which were Spaceship Earth, Energy, Land, uh, World of Motion, and all of that. And um, so I think they went out, you know, they were began looking for a project architect for that. But in the meantime, I, because of, you know, the skill that I had, basic skill that I had in laying out a building, and doing sections and plans and elevations. I don't know if that's why Tony brought me on. I don't know if that was, you know, part of the thinking, but that's what I started doing. And so I started laying out this pavilion and by default was kind of the first architect on it. I did not come up with the idea for the crystals. That came from Dan Guzet, uh, one of the great illustrators at 
WED Enterprises, as it was called at the time, who had also done a lot of uh, movie posters for James Bond and Star Wars, et cetera. Um, but that was, we were all as a group kind of talking about the idea of using crystals. Um, I think that interested Tony since he had planned to have um, a land pavilion that was done in crystals, but that didn't happen. So uh, I think at one point we were all coming up with little crystal designs, uh, but it was Dan Gouzet who landed on the idea of using um, silver halide crystals, which are the, which is the main um, important ingredient in film. Kodak film. And so he took one of those silver halide crystals and blew it up, you know, into a gigantic uh, uh, cluster for the architecture and did an, well, and then he did some sketches. I did, I then took those sketches and, you know, put them to 3D practical use. And, um, and then he did his beautiful rendering of that. So that was also kind of weird that, you know, I just thought, well, so at some point, someone's going to come along and change all of this because it can't be that easy. But basically, <laughs> they built what, you know, I, it, it, you know, once it went to a real architect <laughs> who really knew what they were doing, you know, things changed a little bit and some geometry changed a little bit. But fundamentally, what I drew up and worked with the model shop, the people in the model shop, kind of back and forth, uh, working with them on the crystals and on the theater and the garden that would go in between. So I've already spent too much time, way too much time talking about journey into imagination, but that's um, kind of how I got started at WED. And awesome. after, that, after that, I worked on um, Tomorrowland ideas for Tony, um, a lot of different ideas for a uh, new Tomorrowland. And then, the, then Lucas got involved and we did a Lucas version of Tomorrowland and then Star Tours happened, and I worked on the architect, the uh, the exterior architecture and gra and marquee for that. And then the the legendary neon Mickey's, which I don't know if you're as familiar back east with the neon Mickey's, uh, Spaceman Mickey. But after the castle in Paris, I think the neon Mickey's are becoming the second thing that I'm becoming noted for, <laughs> <laughs> having worked on. So I worked on that a little bit and I did um, worked out of the Disneyland site office for a couple of years. Oh, I worked on Splash Mountain. I laid out Splash Mountain. I forgot about that. So after Epcot, it was Tomorrowland and Splash Mountain, which at the time was called the Zippity Doodah River Run or something like that. So I did I did the, the layout that essentially was, you know, uh, eventually went into Disneyland and then was modified for Walt Disney World. And um, then worked on Disneyland Paris, worked on Fantasyland, designed the castle. Um, after that, I stayed working on Disneyland Paris from the on the U.S. side, taking peri periodic trips out there on behalf of Tony, who was very um, busy with Westcott at the time. And so I was kind of his um, proxy out there uh, for several years, working on additional capacity, additional attractions, restaurants, and all that sort of thing. And concurrent to that was working on developing Disney quest with Joe D'Annunzio and, um, Joe Garlington and others, and came up with several ideas for that and helped lay it out, et cetera. And after that, accidentally, <laughs> fell into the Disneyland Paris Second Gate project. It wasn't accidental. It was, uh, you know, I had been pro proposing a 
a mini park out there for a couple of years that would be focused on animation, like a, you know, like a three or four hour animation. Imagine the animation um, pavilion, if you're familiar with it, at uh, Disney's California Adventure. That, but kind of times three, all indoors because of the weather out there. And somehow that grew into the second gate. And um, so I worked on that for about three or four years. And then I worked on Hong Kong Disneyland. <laughs> and in between all of this, worked on a lot of ideas that never got done for a variety of uh, parks and, um, you know, kind of new, new ideas, new technologies, et cetera. And the last big thing I worked on was uh, Cars Land. And in the last five years, I was working on a lot of uh, proposed projects for a variety of parks with a variety of themes. And um, some of those got built and some of them didn't. And then I retired because I had had enough after 42 years <laughs> at Disney. Uh, I basically didn't have a childhood because, or, you know, a, a late childhood because at age 11, I began uh, a paper route. And from the paper route, I took a job with a um, third-party concession at Disneyland when I was still in high school. And from there, um, became a, uh, a permanent part-time ride operator. And then from there, WDI. So I didn't really have um, weekends or spare time, much spare time starting at age 11. So it was time to say goodbye at the end of 2016 and just consult and uh, which I uh, did and have been doing, um, not so much at all during the pandemic, but started this book project, which I had in the back of my mind, whenever I ran across something interesting at work, I would file it or, I, you know, I do it maybe a Xerox of it and then file it. And, um, because I thought, well, maybe there's some kind of a Disney book that hasn't been done before. And and what's weird is that, you know, it's always been, there's enough Disney books out. Um, we've already covered all of that. We've already done a pictorial, you know, book on Disneyland. We've already, we've done deep dives into the beauty of the parks and all of these different things. And those were always like, I was thinking about doing that, but then someone beat me to it. And uh, I wouldn't have had time at Imagineering to work on that on the side anyway. It's just you're always busy when you're at Imagineering. There's just, you know, enough time to take your vacations and that's it. But nevertheless, I began kind of just like, well, maybe there's some other kind of, you know, a different angle. And so I started to think about the archaeology of Disneyland. So this is not what I'm working on right now, but that's where it started was the archaeology of Disneyland because I... It seemed like I had gathered almost enough material to do that book. You know, the only thing is I needed someone interested in that idea. And that idea is basically, you know, National Geographic style um, deep dive into the building of Disneyland, how it was built, what was there before it was built, uh, what were the main phases of expansion, and you're just taking a, you know, a more archaeological approach to it. Like, you know, just who lived on that property? You know, where were the houses? Where were the trees? What kind, you know, what kind of crops were they? We've heard orange trees, but there were others in there too. And so 
um, oh, there were like artesian wells on the site that they ended up actually using um, and keeping uh, for use, you know, f- un- until very recently. So I thought that would be interesting. And so one day at a meeting and the Disney publishing, some of the Disney publishing people were there. I mentioned, because this was a different topic. I mean, it was a completely different topic. But at the end of the meeting, they threw open, does anyone have any other ideas for some books that we might do? And I said, well, what about the archaeology of Disneyland? And I explained a little bit, you know, what it might be. And they said, well, how soon could you have it? And I said, well, you can't have it right away because, because I'm working. And this is something I have to, like, take a sabbatical uh, or spend all of my spare time doing, but let me know, you know. And so when I retired, I got back in touch with them and they um, tentatively put it on the docket, but then they postponed it a year or two. And I didn't want to wait around. And in the process of researching that, I came across, I started coming across information, all new information. That just kind of blew me away, you know, the personalities, uh, people who worked at Imagineering at the very beginning, what they did, where they came from, where they went afterwards, where did they work? Where was the wet office? I had asked a number of times different people at Imagineering, when it started at the studio, where was it? And I was always told that it was not in any particular place um, that there was no you know, central wet office. It's just different people in different offices spread across the studio. And I found out that wasn't true, that there was a wed office. <laughs> and so where like everything that we love <laughs> was thought up, you know, initially for the first seven or eight years, wed was at the studio in the animation building. And um, so anything from, you know, the genesis of Disneyland to all of the additional attractions like the mine train and nature's wonderland and the Matterhorn and submarines and countless projects that were never built, uh, but also the haunted house and then the haunted mansion, all of that came out of Burbank, not out of Glendale. And so who were those people who worked on that? Who were the people before Mark Davis and Willie Crump joined at you know, the end of the 50s and the early 60s. So next thing I know, I've just got all of this material that like, oh my God. And, um, you know, I mentioned it to the head archivist there, Becky, and it's like, this is a whole, this, this is a whole other history or side of Imagineering that has never been uh, revealed. You know, um, so much of what we see and hear is the history that, began to be written in the late 60s or early 70s. And so a lot of it had just been forgotten. And um, so, wow, I I mean, I don't, you know, so long story short, I was going to do this singular book and and it will um, be done in cooperation or um, in coordination, I should say, with Disney Publishing, but it will not be Disney Publishing. It will be with another uh, publisher, but it needs to go through all the same standards and, um, you know, Disney legal and, uh, lots of reviews and everything like that. But so far, everyone who has seen, uh, um, what, you know, what I've put together has been extremely excited. And so it's grown from, you know, basically a 200, what I thought would be a 200 or 300 page 
deal to um it's going to be you know six or seven hundred pages so therefore it's going to be cut up into four parts each with a particular focus so the um, the first volume will be strictly focused on the very beginning of wed enterprises why it was formed because it wasn't formed specifically to design disneyland they had an, another project before that that was their first thing that they were going to do <laughs> you're just going to tease uh, us with that tom you're not gonna yes. yeah it, <laughs> nice nice to sweep it under the rug and keep moving. you're welcome you're well don't it's not that exciting it's just surprising i guess and um so it will go from the founding of WED, actually backing up a little bit, starting, you know, around when they brought, when Walt brought Harper Goff over from Warner Brothers to work on various things, including Disneyland. Uh, so it starts really there. That's when it really starts. But the founding or the actual um, legal founding of WED was at the end of 1952. So I really start there. And it goes through the onboarding of the Imagineers and uh, the original Imagineers and through to the opening of Disneyland um, to the end of 1955 because they weren't um, completely finished with the budgeted uh, work that they had initially. So they had just some little you know things that they had to add until the end of 55. So it goes till then. That's the first volume. The people who designed Disneyland. Who were they? Where did they come from? How many were there? What were their names? Where did they go from there? Who were the consultant, the key consultants? Who were the key manufacturers? And I will I will say, because I've already said it, um, that the biggest surprise was that, well, have you heard this? You've probably heard this before. Um, Walt didn't want to go to an architect uh, or to an architectural firm to have Disneyland designed. He turned to his own studio personnel, animators, set designers, um, et cetera, to uh, be the first Imagineers. And that's completely wrong. 100%, now 98% wrong. The first group of Imagineers were not from the studio, from the Walt Disney Studios. The closest you could say would be Harper Goff, but Walt hired him away from Warner Brothers to work on Disneyland early, you know, around 51. But he came from, he wasn't schooled in the school of Disney, um, which is what that statement kind of implies, is that he wanted people who were experienced and who knew uh, innately the Disney way and the Disney style. So, um those folks don't come along until the end of 54 and 55 by agreement with Roy, because, you know, you've heard wet enterprises was Walt's own company and it wasn't necessarily, I, I think Roy was supportive. Roy was supportive of it, but um, some of the stockholders weren't and some of the board of director folks were not. And so it was stipulated that Walt was not to cannibalize the studio for his park project. The only person he brought, the only person he did that with initially was Bruce Bushman uh, and another gentleman that you've never heard of, I'm sure, called named um, Dick Kelsey, because I had never heard of him. Um, and he wasn't there. He wasn't with Imagineering very long. But those were the two people that were brought over or loaned from the studio to work on Disneyland initially. 
And it wasn't until Walt Disney Productions took an ownership stake in Disneyland uh, in the middle of 1954, where an agreement was made that if there was staff that was um, between jobs, you know, someone, if they finished up on Lady and the Tramp and they're waiting to get on to Sleeping Beauty, then they can be loaned out to WED. So those folks were John Hench, Claude Coates, Ken Anderson, and a few others, but not very many, you know, no more than 10 versus a hundred people that were hired out from the outside, mostly from MGM, Fox, and Warner Brothers. And they were the first Imagineers and they did it kind of with their eyes closed. I mean, I say that facetiously, but uh, most of them had worked on hundreds of films. Uh, many of them were in their 60s getting ready to retire and had been laid off um, by those studios, which were downsizing. And some had worked for the studios for a long time and opened up their own architectural firms later. Uh, but they all had motion picture experience um, with the exception of a handful. So um, what they worked on, things like Wizard of Oz and um, Casablanca and Meet Me in St. Louis and so many other films. I mean, those are the big name films, but, you know, back in those days, MGM would spit out, you know, uh, almost a hundred films a year, I think, or at least 50. Uh, some of these guys had worked on so many films that they could think these things up kind of in their sleep. So the person you need to know, because I listened to your top 10 uh, Imagineers <laughs> uh, broadcast, <laughs> and the, people, the, the number one person you need to know and revise that list immediately is Dick Irvine, because Dick okay. Irvine is the person who Walt selected to head Wed Enterprises, um, because he knew that Dick was well connected with the other art directors and art departments at all the other studios. It was kind of a fraternity in a way. Um, it wasn't competitive, like, ooh, you know, MGM people won't talk to Fox people. All of the art department heads at all the studios kind of coordinated with one another and let the other um, departments know when they were going to do a layoff or when certain people became available after a job. And so um, Dick Irvine was in the middle of all of that. And so, and he had already worked for Walt in the 40s on the first live action segments that were done for the films. So Dick was the one who hired the first Imagineers. He was the one who knew who is a good tropical, you know, Polynesian style, someone who could do that style. Who's Who's good with Westerns? Who's good with old town America, you know, Americana architecture. Who can find props for us? Who can go out and scour all of the buildings in the LA area that are about to be torn down and grab, you know, um, lighting fixtures, doors, windows, ornamentation. You know, there was someone who was connected, already connected with the people who do that sort of thing. And so that person, you know, was hired. And what I didn't know was almost all the doors on Main Street um, were stock, were from buildings about to be torn down or uh, acquired at junkyards and that sort of thing. Uh, most of the doors, many of the windows, many of the, uh, I think almost all of the antique lighting fixtures. 
And so um, it's, it's just became very fascinating to me. It may just be me. I don't know. Um, but I find all that really interesting and like never talked about, never heard, you know, uh, another, I have heard other names that have had become appropriated in that role or misappropriated um, in that role. And to find out, oh, that other person didn't start till much later. So all of this reclamation from the buildings was done by this other person that you've never you know, heard of before. So those were some of the old timers that Dick Irvine brought in. But then there were a few apprentices, a few younger people in 1954 um, who were hired as runners, you know, kind of hired kind of like I was. Oh, this person has a decent portfolio. Looks like they can do some decent drafting. Uh, first, we'll have them run blueprints off the blueprint machine and, you know, run errands and order supplies and stuff like that. We'll see if they can, you know, actually draw and draft. One of those people was uh, Dean Tavalaris. Google him. He's still alive. And he was with Imagineering for eight years. And you've never heard of him. He worked on almost every single Disneyland project. Uh, I interviewed him. He's still alive. And he remembered Fred Jerger, Bill Martin. He remembered the original art directors, the original assistant art directors, his contemporaries that he worked with. And he, he, you know, and so I have gone through almost all of the original Disneyland construction drawings, and his name is on like ten percent of all the of the construction drawings. Uh, he was very proficient, and clearly was identified, you know, early on as a keeper. I don't know if you've hit, got the hits yet on him, but. Yeah, he's I'm one looking of, at yeah. some of his the the movies and stuff that he worked on, yeah. like not yeah. Disney, like. Oh, just, you know, the Godfather series and Apocalypse Now, just a couple yeah. of small titles. Stuff like just that. You. <laughs> he was even a character on, you know, he was a, he was a, you know, a non-fictional character on the Paramount Plus series about the making of The Godfather. Oh, such a good show. Um, yeah. So the art director, Dean Tavalaris. And um, so he, he worked on lots and lots of projects and, and then he moved over to film because that was his passion. But just the story of how he was onboarded was amazing and a tribute to the foresight of his supervisors because he started in animation. For some reason, you know, maybe it was a mix-up or something, but he was brought over to the in-betweening department, to the they call it the bullpen. He worked in the bullpen on Lady and the Tramp. That was his first assignment. He didn't know anything about WED or Disneyland or any of that. He thought he was going to um, work in the live action art department, but there was no live action art department there. He probably had heard through the grapevine that they were going to start one for live action film. But remember, Disney had not done any live action films until 20,000 Leagues at the studio, not feature length anyway. Um, there was no need for a full time live action art department. So he was working on Lady and the Tramp in between working on an alligator with, you know, countless teeth. And he got sick of it after two weeks. He's like, this is not what I had, you know, signed up for. And so he quit on Friday and he told his supervisor, I'm sorry, you know, apologies. Uh, it's not what I had in mind. And in most studios, 
they would say, all right, don't let the door, you know, hit you in the butt on the way out. And instead, the supervisor walked him down the hall into the wet office and said, you should hire this guy. And um, so he started the next Monday at WED as a drafts person. And he probably did all the grunt work for, you know, two or three weeks and then was assigned real projects. And so some of the very earliest drawings for Disneyland uh, were drafted by Dean Tavalaris. He's very modest about his contribution. He he insists that none of it was his ideation. That he was always, you know, doing what the art what the art director, you know, was asking him to do. But in fact, um, and that was probably true most of the time. But there's always these um, times, especially in the rush of building something like Disneyland, where there's no time for the art director to even do a sketch. Uh, it's like, just think of something, you know? And, um, and so there's a lot of those kinds of things like a bandstand, you know, the bandstand in Frontierland that they had for the first 10 years there. It's a really cute little, um, bandstand where they had a mariachi band. I'm certain that, you know, that was not something that John Hench or, <laughs> I mean, John wasn't even full-time on the project. That's another thing, you know, the, the Claude and, and John were not full-time until, until they moved to Glendale, you know, so they were still borrowed and, you know, kind of batted back and forth between WED and the animation department throughout the 50s. So a lot of that stuff, the the, the good draftsmen, I'm sure, were allowed to kind of, you know, add their design touches to something. So anyway, he did that. And there were others. So he's probably the most notable one, but there, there were others who went on to bigger things too. And, um, that was really one interesting, very interesting facet. And the other very interesting facet was finding photographs of this time period and of these places where this work was taking place that I had never seen, nor I think anyone else had ever seen before. And um, I think usually these discoveries were while looking for something else. And they were never in a place where you would think to find them. So I guess that's why no one has ever found them. <laughs> but there's photos of the original wet office. Um, there are documents that you can extrapolate from um, to determine who was there and when and where they were sitting. And those offices all still exist, hardly changed at all. A wall moved here and there, a door moved here and there. Otherwise, you look at these photos and you can see certain things in the room, light switches, outlets, fire sprinklers, certain telltale uh, things that line up exactly with uh, photos from 70 years ago. And so uh, it is going to be as much a photo essay of this um, time period as it will be like, you know, incredible new information and profiles of people that you haven't heard of before. And where did certain things, you know, where did certain work take place? Where was the rocket to the moon built? Who designed that? Or who engineered that? You know, where were the trains built? Where were, what soundstage was the Mark Twain on? And um, once a certain amount of that information came together, the rest of the information started kind of coming in fast. So it's kind of like 90% um, of the information came right in the first year of the research and the last three or four years has been tracking down and filling in the blanks of the last 10%. But there's enough information there um, 
in addition to like, where did everyone sit? Because that does inform a certain process and a certain workflow. You look at that and go, oh, well, these people are clumped together because, you know, for some certain reason, that makes sense. But even like, you know, have you seen the photos of the Mark Twain, on, you know, being built on the soundstage at Disneyland? Well, it's possible to know not only what soundstage, but where exactly it was sitting in the soundstage. All of those mock-ups can be traced back to locations on the sound stages and on the lot. That's not just from photos that are available at the Walt Disney Archives, but things like recon aerial photos, which show where the, the test pool for the submarine was on the studio lot, where the Ford Magic Highways mock-up was done on the studio lot. All these you can see in aerial, clearly in aerial photographs, if you know what aerial photograph collection to go to. Uh, I even discovered, I had no idea, there was a Pirates of the Caribbean mock-up at the studio for the ride track, for the lift and the drop, before Disney talked to Aero Development about it. And no one remembers it. It's like, did I, you know, am I imagining this? I find the memos that talk about it. I find the drawings that show the building of the mock-up, how it's to be constructed, and yet no one remembers it. Not even Bob Gurr. <laughs> who I talk to constantly. So um, yeah, that's you know what this is all going to be about. It's going to get really fun when things move to Glendale and um, more of the names will become familiar at that time. And that's where um, you know a lot, some of the most fun things obviously took place, the designing of the World's Fair and the um, Tiki Room and New Orleans Square and um, other versions of the haunted house, haunted mansion. And, um, you know, all of that in the Sonora building, not in the 1401 flower. So it's amazing how many people I was just surprised because I heard someone recently who worked there mention the 1401 building as the place where it all started in 55. And it's like that building didn't even exist in 1955. And it wasn't built for Disney. It was built for a cosmetics firm. Disney didn't move into it until 1965. 1961, they were in an adjacent building that they nicknamed the Pancake House. And that's where most of the Walt Disney interface took place. Walt only walked the halls of 1401 for a year and a half before he passed away. There were four years of working on Haunted Mansion, Tomorrowland, New Orleans Square, Pirates of the Caribbean, etc., in the Pancake House <laughs> on the corner. So yada, 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 that is a little bit about what I have been working on. And um, to kind of give you an idea of, for me, you know, someone asked me, what, what's this like kind of finding out all of this new information? How would you explain it or describe it? Because it, first of all, there's nothing, you know, um, salacious or controversial or anything like that. The, the this information was not purposely hidden or, you know, filed away for any purpose. It's just, it's the way humans work, which is when you leave a location and go to another location, the current location overwrites the previous location. Not 100%, but um, your memory, especially if you've moved from office to office, like I have, I, I can remember the first office. And I can remember the last couple of offices and all the stuff in between. I can't remember, you know, 
you know, in the locations, like if they were overseas or whatever, if I haven't thought of those people in 10 years, at some point they're going to vanish from my hard drive up here. And um, so the earliest people are in there and the latest people are in there. And there's a whole bunch of people that I've forgotten about and instances that I've forgotten about. And that I think is explains why a lot of this information just hasn't been recovered. And you also have to know where to look for it and how to look for it, because it's not going to be sitting in a folder saying the missing information <laughs> or, you know, never seen the never seen files. They're going to be in weird miscellaneous places. And these will be all the dots, you know, that fill in that helped connect, you know, the, the dots on um, the history and provide a more, you know, a higher resolution image for your memory, for your imagination. It, it So in short, it's kind of like we have been told and taught, you know, the eight bit history. <laughs> and, um, and Leslie Irish did an incredible job. Um, and a as are some current authors, colleagues of mine, and fellow authors who are now doing the 32-bit and 64-bit uh, versions of the history of Imagineering. We have literally seen, been living the 4-bit, 8-bit history. So you know about Mark Davis, and you know about Rolly Crump, and you know about Mary Blair. You don't know about Dick Irvine or Marvin Davis or so many. Or, or one of the biggest surprises was a guy named Sam Hamill. Sam Hamill uh, was not technically on the payroll of Imagineering, but um, he was recommended to Walt Disney by Neela Park in Ohio. Anyone heard of Neela Park? I had not heard of Neela Park. You know, I mispronounced it for the first three or four years as Nella Park, but it's Neela Park, and it's the um, lighting lab for General Electric. It's where Christmas lights were invented. It's where fluorescent lights were invented. It's where colored fluorescent lights were invented. What was the Disney connection to that? Well, they had worked on um, projector lighting, you know, since the 1910s or 1920s. So they were Disney's go-to for research for, you know, better um, projection uh, lighting. So someone there had recommended this guy named Sam Hamill, who had done lighting for the 1939 World's Fair and for projects back east for... Um, Robert Moses, and he had moved to um, Southern California, moved his business there, and he was an expert in in lighting for installations like Disneyland and other places like that, um, and also water. So he he was a person who lit up water and synchronized it to music for the first time since the French in the 18th century. But never mind that. Um, <laughs> And he had done this for the 39 World's Fair, and he had done it for some smaller installations around Los Angeles. So he was selected to be the lighting consultant, um, but he was also a civil engineer. He was a mechanical engineer and a lighting specialist and a water hydro engineer. And so he worked out the waterway system for Disneyland, the water circulation system, where it goes from rivers of America up to Fantasyland over to Tomorrowland, back to the castle, around the hub, and into the Jungle Cruise before 
dumping back finally into the um, rivers of America. He developed that system. He, he worked with Harper Goff on the um, contours for Schweitzer Falls in such a way to ensure that the water would not actually splash back into the boat. He invented the coupling system that the boat connects to the track with. No one had ever had a need for connecting a boat to a track ever. So the the Mark Twain steamboat needed that and the um, Jungle Cruise needed that. And so he invented that. It might have been the first patent um, from Wet Enterprises. Is this like too much detail? That's, I don't know. No, that's insane. <laughs> I was just going to say, I know we're getting close to our, we're at about our hour. And I just want you to keep going, get Barry, whatever magic you work to get Talbot, yeah. you got to get him back. Because this is so cool, like hearing that stuff. We that's the stuff that we love, Tom. It's definitely okay. Good. Deep, well, you know, like well, 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 it's a good thing, Tom, because I think you answered somewhere in your uh, explanation. You answered everyone's question that, that they may have had for tonight. So let me let me finish with this, and we definitely have to have you come on. So why is it that way? Why is it that most people only know about, you know, Bob Gurr and Marty Sklar and uh, Joe Rohde and people like that? It seems like there's so many Imagineers that had so many uh, different areas where, you know, they improved or they invented something or, but it just seems like what you're saying is like, there's just so many people that are just, you know, left out in the cold. It's not, they're not well, the top 10, like, you know, you heard us say the top 10 of Imagineers. There, there would have been no reason, you know, in the early days to do that. In fact, I, you know, I think initially there was some fear about letting the names out at all, lest someone else try to steal them away because, you know, there were, there was already um, things starting up like the Pacific Ocean Park and other places that would have loved to have um, cannibalized or raided Disney's talent. So there was a there was a specific reason for it early on. Occasionally, you would see in a newspaper or magazine article a mention or a photo um, of one of the Imagineers, but it was nothing that was ever declared or you know specifically publicized. Plus, there was no internal. They call them house organs, and I have no idea why. It's a weird name to me. Does that mean like an organ that you play or like your bodily organs? I don't know. But house organs are like the Disneyland line or the Eyes and Ears publication. They're they're just in-house newsletters for employees. So there was no such thing at Disney, at the Disney Studios or at WED back then. Uh, where you would have feature articles talking about, you know, projects um, that are in progress and the people working on them, or this person's retiring, or this person's coming on board. Um, there was none of that until the mid-70s. So on a top level, if you were just to try to start gathering names you and you didn't know where to go... <laughs> Um, the newsletters don't start till the mid seventies. So you can start getting all those names. And, and it's, I think, you know, in more recent times, certainly there's a lot more Imagineers that are known now. And, you know, that began to, to a limited degree with Walt Disney world and has slowly kind of ramped up to now. But, um, back then they, they wanted to keep it a secret. And then at some point Walt felt comfortable 
starting to show off some of them. So, you know, he would do that on the TV programs where you'd see Roley or Harriet or John Hench, some of those. I think that's really where, I mean, all the names that people name are the ones that showed up on those TV programs. So it's it's Mary and Roley and Claude, Blaine, um, Mark, etc. cetera. And, um, and the others, not on purpose, not through any spite or anything. It's just... There just wasn't that information or how would you find it? And thank God <laughs> that for the Disney archives, for one thing. And also, you know, they, they have such um, something that you would think like, why would you ever need the phone directories, you know, from back then? But the phone directories were the key to finding who these people were because the phone directories showed or indicated where they sat and where they sat was the web office. So I backtracked with all of those names that I gathered and suspicious that they wouldn't all be Imagineers. And that turned out to be true. But I went through every single one of those names. And um, a lot of them came up on IMDB or other you know places otherwise on Google. Some of them didn't. So I you know required deeper searches. But uh, like I said, within a year, I had all the names. And, uh, you know, over the last three or four years, I crossed a few out that I, you know, found out weren't working on the project. Um, but all the ones that are going in the book are verified, you know, either through memo uh, or construction drawing or photograph or, you know, other ways that I went about um, verifying information. Basically, it doesn't go in the book if it doesn't have at least two forms of verification. All right. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. Uh, Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing all that information. I mean, the bag is probably completely empty or maybe half full. I don't know how much more you have in there, but we would love to have you back on again to talk more on that. Great. Well, let's do it in a few months. All right. Hopefully by then, maybe the first volume will be out. The first volume is finished, by the way. As far as I'm concerned, it's now in review. Um, and and I like the fact that it goes through about um, seven or eight pairs of experienced eyeballs who can verify and and fact check and correct my lousy grammar. And, uh, and then the last phase is it goes through Disney Legal. And hopefully there won't be anything in there. I've, I've been careful to, you know, uh, be a good corporate citizen. And, uh, you know, there's... There's always the cigarette thing, right? But there's no cigarettes in it. So, <laughs> although I found perfect time to have back. <laughs> there are more <laughs> cigarettes comes out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Great. All right. And and Tom, before we let you go, do you have a website or any information you want oh. to uh, give out to our listeners? I do not, but should have a website, but I don't. But I do have. I, I am on. Um, I still call it Twitter. I will not call it X because someday Twitter is going to come back, I hope. Uh, but I'm on Twitter as Tom K. Morris, and I am also on Instagram as Tom K. Morris. And uh, that's where you'll find me in the world of social media. Let's go ahead and we'll uh, wrap it up. Uh, we want to thank you all for tuning into another wonderful episode of Sharing the Magic. As always, please hit the follow button to stay up to date on the latest episodes. Please tell all your friends where they can find us and please follow us on all social media at sharing the magic pod. And until next time, keep sharing the magic.